In that regard, I do not favor redistribution of current revenues that accrue to the BCS universities through their football media contracts. The current revenue structure is a result of the free market system at work. I thought that fairness in our society meant that if you worked hard, if you made the right decisions, if you were able to retain the allegiance of customers or patrons, and if you were successful, you should be able to enjoy the benefits of that success. If you elect to be a student athlete, your earnings should benefit all student athletes at your institutions. If you want to keep the money and be someone's employees, then go join a professional team. In fact, the national office and the NCAA president have no authority other than that explicitly granted by the more than 1,000 member colleges and universities. I'm not involved in the details enough of that particular case to be able to answer your specific question. You're the CEO, and when there is a lack of transparency or subjectiveness, the objectivity should come to you. I yield back my time. Welcome to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. This podcast is about the Byzantine world of the business of big-time college sports. I've spent the last two years researching and writing on the business of big-time college sports, and I've been connected to these issues in one way or another since the mid-1980s. In my more recent research, I have come to believe three overarching truths about college sports and the business of college sports. One, almost nothing about the business of big-time college sports is as it's portrayed to the public. Number two, almost everything that we know about big-time college sports comes from institutions and interests and people who have a direct financial stake in it. And number three, when it comes to the business of big-time college sports, it is always, always about the money, the power, and the perception. The evolution and history of college sports in America has been defined by several crucial eras that are really the product of perfect storms, a series of events, some of which were purely fortuitous, that came together to fundamentally alter the direction of college sports. And that's happening right now in real time. We're in the midst of a perfect storm of events that I believe when viewed historically will rank among the most consequential eras in the history of big-time college sports. This podcast is dedicated to a critical examination of the perfect storm and putting it into historical context and analyzing what it says about the business of big-time college sports, as well as the key participants in the market, the key decision makers, and the power brokers. In my personal experience and in my work, I believe that most fans of college sports have a basic understanding as it's been presented through the lens of the mainstream media and other in-system filters that the amateurism-based approach to college athletics and the totalitarian 
approach that the NCAA and, and system stakeholders have taken to amateurism-based compensation limits is outdated and, and that it needs to be reconsidered and perhaps amended in a way that brings the model into the realities of this $15 billion a year industry that college sports has become. I also think that a lot of fans of college sports have also become aware of and, and sensitized to the understanding that the true value products in big time college sports, and that's big time college football and big time men's basketball, are comprised largely of a labor force of African-American men. And so there's this sense that there's a justice issue that's percolating underneath the amateurism-based approach to college athletics. And a lot of people think it's time for some fundamental change. So now as part of the public consciousness of big-time college sports. There are discussions about whether athletes should be paid some nominal amount above the value of their scholarship limit, whether they should receive, quote-unquote, compensation for their name, image, and likeness. And I'm going to talk a lot about name, image, and likeness. I'm going to use a shorthand nil. So when I say nil, I'm referring to name, image, and likeness. And then also a discussion about whether athletes should have some of the basic protections that an employee would have in a traditional employer-employee relationship because one of the fundamental tenets of amateurism is that athletes cannot be employees. And, and that arises from this conceptualization of the student-athlete, which we're also going to talk a lot about. But I want to make clear at the beginning of, of this discussion and to frame the issues for the podcast that what is really happening in this perfect storm of events and, and what it's really about has very little to do with whether or how much athletes get paid in any of those contexts, the perfect storm is really about who gets to decide. And many people have believed, and, and I believe this, that the NCAA has a history of dragging its feet on athletes' rights issues, and it has to be forced to change. And so the beginning elements of this perfect storm, which really started in, I think, in earnest in 2006 with the beginning wave of some antitrust suits filed by athletes challenging in different contexts the NCAA's amateurism-based compensation limits really put some pressure on the NCAA and they've always been reactive. They haven't been proactive in, in trying to get ahead of the game in this athletes' rights discussion. So I'm going to talk in detail about these antitrust cases when we get to analyzing the elements of the perfect storm. But following what I am going to argue was largely a failed effort in those antitrust suits, because the outcome of those suits were largely deferential to the NCAA's conceptualization of amateurism, and they did not give the athletes the ultimate victory, which is an open and free market for the value of the athlete's services. But on the backside of that, then you had state legislatures coming in to try to force the NCAA to do what it didn't want to do voluntarily. In 2019, the California legislature passed a law that was ostensibly limited to name, image, and likeness. And it was going to provide athletes in California the opportunity to benefit from their name, image, and likeness. And it trumped NCAA compensation limits because NCAA regulations at the time, and, and even today, prohibit college athletes from making money 
for their name, image, and likeness. But then there was this, this additional external threat to the NCAA's autonomy and regulatory authority. And then there were a number of other circumstances that occurred into 2019 and, and 2020, and really now into 2021, that are part of this perfect storm I'll talk a little bit about later. But what this battle is really about, what this entire perfect storm is about, is the NCAA and the Power Five conferences, and the Power Five conferences are the ACC, the Big Ten, the Big 12, the Pac-12, and the SEC. And those really are the business of big-time college sports. That is the college sports marketplace. And that's, again, in football and men's basketball. But they have combined forces to try to achieve the iron throne of college sports regulation. Their primary goal is to eliminate external threats to their regulatory power. And right now, those main threats are federal antitrust suits and state legislation because the NCAA and the Power Five believe that they and they alone should sit on the iron throne of college sports regulation. They want to have the sole authority to make the rules. They want to have the sole authority to interpret the rules. And they want to have sole authority to enforce the rules. And they don't want Congress coming in and telling them what to do. They don't want state legislatures coming in and telling them what to do. They don't want any external influences telling them what to do. So the NCAA and Power Five have convinced themselves since the beginning of these antitrust suits and, and heading into this wave of state legislation that their fundamental business model is under existential threat. And this is an approach the NCAA has taken for decades whenever it has had to answer for its amateurism-based compensation limits or its market behavior in the antitrust context. It has hunkered down and said, look, you're trying to kill college sports. And if we make any changes to the business model, to the regulatory model, then college sports as we know it will end. And you will kill this product that means so much in American culture. And that's been a really effective strategy for them. And they're employing it in this perfect storm. So what they've tried to achieve, and a lot of this has been in the context of this name, image, and likeness, quote unquote, compensation movement, is to achieve from Congress a set of protections and immunities at the federal level that would essentially place the NCAA on the iron throne of college sports regulation because they want to have complete immunity from antitrust liability. They want to have a declaration under federal law that states cannot impose any restrictions or limitations on NCAA regulation that relate in any way to its compensation limits. And they also want a declaration from Congress under federal law that revenue-producing athletes, and this is really all geared towards revenue-producing athletes, ostensibly it would apply to all athletes, but the NCAA and Power Five are only concerned about any threats to the regulatory model that also threaten their financial interests. So this is really directed to revenue-producing athletes, but they want a declaration that those athletes cannot be deemed employees of their university. And that's really for two reasons, not only to avoid the responsibilities of an employer-employee relationship, but it has the additional benefit to the NCAA and Power Five that college athletes would not be able to unionize as they tried to do in 2014 in the Northwestern football case. And we're going to talk about that too. But under federal labor laws, in order to organize a union, 
you have to first establish that you are employees. That's a fundamental predicate to the formation of a union. So while the NCAA and Power Five were talking to Congress and, and putting out for public relations purposes that they were engaged in a sincere effort in Congress to try to come up with a framework for nil compensation, in fact, what they were doing was using that forum and that opportunity to get in front of Congress, primarily the Senate, and argue for these extraordinary federal immunities and protections. And what they were asking for is one of the most audacious regulatory power grabs in the history of sports, college or professional. And I have a very detailed timeline of events that walk us through the perfect storm, through the antitrust suits. And when we get to May of 2019, you really start to see the NCAA and Power Five aggressively pursuing their interests in Congress. And a lot of this was done off the radar screen. And we're going to lay that out. And they did this through an NCAA body known as the NCAA Board of Governors Federal and State legislation working group. And that group was announced on May 14th, 2019, which just happened to be the day that former Congressman Mark Walker from North Carolina introduced a bill in the Congress that would have stripped the NCAA of its tax-exempt status if it had not provided meaningful name, image, and likeness compensation for athletes. So you have this working group that was really targeting or trying to get ahead of the legislation that was coming out of the House of Representatives. And then that sort of dovetailed into the fall of 2019 when the California law was passed by the California Assembly. And you have to remember that the NCAA working group and the NCAA national office responded to both of those threats initially very aggressively. And with the California law, they threatened to sue the state of California. So their initial response wasn't warm and fuzzy, let's work together. It was very confrontational and militantly opposed to nil compensation. So over time, as public opinion turned on the NCAA, all of a sudden this working group became a working group dedicated to putting together a framework for name, image, and likeness compensation. So it has an interesting history, but was not at all what it appeared to the general public. What actually was happening was that the NCAA and Power Five were trying to build up some momentum in the Senate to get these extraordinary federal protections. And some evidence of that is how the NCAA and Power Five framed their nil compensation issues. And they said from the beginning, and, and this really was the red flag, that any nil compensation that athletes may get had to be consistent with the quote-unquote collegiate model. And, and in the context of nil compensation, they were using the collegiate model, which we're going to talk a lot about. That was an invention of Miles Brand, a former NCAA president in 2003, 2004. He came up with that concept and it's nothing what it's been portrayed to the public. But they were using the collegiate model in this context really as a substitute for amateurism. And so they wanted all these, they call them guardrails, guardrails around nil compensation that would protect the collegiate model. So that resulted in this Orwellian construction of name, image, and likeness compensation that athletes could be compensated for their nil, but only within the stricture of 
NCAA principles that prohibited compensation. It was really ridiculous on its face, but like so many NCAA inconsistencies, they've been so effective in their public relations campaign that they get this stuff out there into the public domain and, and people just assume that that's a viable proposition, that you can have meaningful nil compensation within rules that prohibit compensation. Condoleezza Rice, who was head of the Commission on College Basketball, which was formed in 2017 in response to some corruption issues in college basketball. She made some public comments after the report was released in April of 2018 because the commission had looked at name, image, and likeness and was deciding whether to address it in the report. And they ultimately punted on on the issue. And and that's part of the timeline. and, And I'll talk about that. But on the backside of that, Dr. Rice made some really insightful comments. And she said out loud and in public, look, I don't know how you can provide nil compensation within the confines of the collegiate model. You know, she said, I hope we can find a way to do it. But she's a smart, accomplished woman. And as former Secretary of State, she's heard more than her share of BS. And this was NCAA BS. It's classic NCAA BS. So this notion that the NCAA and Power Five were sincere in their efforts in Congress to try to come up with a framework, an honest framework that would provide meaningful nil compensation simply was a ruse. And then another big piece of this perfect storm was one of these antitrust suits that had made its way through the federal system coincidentally along the same timeline as this name, image, and likeness debate. In that case, Austin versus NCAA was an antitrust challenge by athletes, and they were really challenging the entire web of NCAA compensation limits. So they were trying to hit a grand slam home run and trying to get all these compensation limits declared illegal under antitrust laws, which would have opened up a free market for the value of the athletes services. But the district court actually gave a modest remedy, didn't open the market. And then the NCAA, not the athletes, appealed the case to the Ninth Circuit, where they lost. And then the NCAA appealed the case to the U.S. Supreme Court. So the NCAA was using this this case in the appellate process is a kind of a first strike weapon to try to get in front of the U.S. Supreme Court its key argument in that case. And that is that because of amateurism, the NCAA should not have to face liability or accountability under federal antitrust laws and that it should be left free to be the sole regulator in that area. So in that sense, this Austin case, the NCAA was seeking one of the key components that it was also seeking in Congress, but it was being disingenuous in its public statements and its statements in the Austin case to federal courts, no less, about its intentions in Congress. And then it was downplaying the Austin suit in Congress. So it was getting two bites at the apple here. And that was something that didn't get the proper attention in my judgment. And I've written about this. You know, I started a blog about two years ago as I was reengaging with my research and writing on, on athletes' rights and college sports regulation. And I've written about a lot of these issues. And you can find that blog at kagerredux.com, C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. And I did an article, I did a blog post on how the NCAA and Power Five were playing off 
the congressional campaign for antitrust immunity with this Austin suit. And it's really interesting to see how they did that. But we're going we're gonna to go through all that at the granular level as we talk about how this perfect storm has played out. So you have these two big elements. And then you had a lot of other things that really exposed the dark side of the business model of big time college sports and the motivations and tactics of the NCAA and Power Five. And, and that began with COVID. COVID really exposed some of the cracks in the foundation of big time college sports. And then you had the racial and social unrest that was the result of George Floyd's murder and some other surrounding events, really unfortunate events, that kind of brought the racial component of the NCAA's business model front and center. And in my judgment, the NCAA and Power Five didn't address that honestly, and it was a really a missed opportunity. And then you had the decisions about fall football, which add into this perfect storm, because you had really the entire NCAA college sports system kind of coming to a halt but then you had the, the Power Five conferences making these decisions to go forward with fall football and even then with split results, you know, because the initially the Big Ten and Pac-12 decided that they weren't going to play. And, and that has interesting historical roots. And to understand why the NCAA was powerless over the Power Five conferences and fall football, you have to press rewind really back to the early 1970s and up to perhaps the most important single event in the history of college sports. And that was a 1984 Supreme Court decision called Board of Regents in which a group of powerhouse football schools combined forces to sue the NCAA under antitrust laws. And the plaintiffs in that suit were what is now the Big 12, the SEC, and the ACC. Notably, the what was in the Pac-8 and the Big 10 were not part of this effort. And, and that ties into this historical rift that I referenced earlier. But they filed an antitrust suit challenging the NCAA's monopoly over televised football. Because from 1951 until 1981, the NCAA had the exclusive authority to enter into contracts with broadcast media outlets for televised football. And the big time conferences weren't real happy with that because they felt like their exposure was being limited, their money was being limited. So they filed a lawsuit and in 1981 and the U.S. Supreme Court in 1984 agreed with the district court that the NCAA was indeed acting as a monopoly and a classic cartel. And it struck down the TV contracts and then left to the free markets. And that's important. They left to the free markets the future of college football. And that resulted in just an explosion of football content. And it happened to coincide with the emergence of the cable TV technology. And so there were a lot more TV sets in America. And the synergistic effect of those two things fundamentally changed college sports. And really, there's a before Board of Regents and after Board of Regents. And that lawsuit also established that football is king. And over the years, the big-time football interests have really pushed the NCAA around and insisted on their interests being segregated and protected within the NCAA governance structure. And that's really an important part of this whole puzzle historically, is the relationship between the big-time football interests 
interests, the NCAA national office, and then the basketball interests because the NCAA gets no money from football. A lot of people don't understand that. All of their revenue comes from the March Madness basketball tournament. So understanding how those three components of the business model interact with each other is really the Rosetta Stone to understanding some of the bigger issues about the business of college sports and how all of the various stakeholders relate to each other. And the story of how that came to be is really fascinating. And, and we're going to talk about that as well. So then we're coming into a couple of other things that happened that were really important in the perfect storm. And one was the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg in September of 2020. I think she died on September 18th. That was consequential because in my judgment, Ruth Bader Ginsburg would have been an important voice on the court to really focus on some of the equity issues that were being understated and underplayed, actually outright denied by the NCAA and Power Five and how they were presenting the legal issues in that Austin case. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg was sensitive to the racial justice issues. She was sensitive to the exploitation issues. And I think the weight and authority of her voice in the Austin case could be game-changing in how the court looked at it. So she's no longer on the bench, but even more importantly, her replacement, Amy Coney Barrett, is the dream justice for the NCAA, at least on paper. She's conservative, and, and one of the unfortunate narratives that sort of developed in this perfect storm was that the athletes' rights issue became partisan. And particularly in the Senate, it was almost exclusively a partisan issue. And if you were a Republican, you supported the NCAA's approach. And if you were a Democrat, then you were pro-athlete. And there was not a lot of middle ground there, and there still isn't. But Justice Barrett is conservative and changed the balance of the court. But equally important, she came from the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. And the Seventh Circuit is home to the state of Indiana, which is the NCAA's home court, pun intended. And it's a very conservative court and a number of very favorable rulings for the NCAA and for the big time sports business interests have come out of the Seventh Circuit. And there's one case in particular from 2018, Justice Barrett did not sit on the panel that handled this case, but she was a member of the Seventh Circuit when it was issued. But that case is the ideal case from the NCAA standpoint. And it's argued to the Supreme Court that it should adopt the rationale of that case and the way that it approached a challenge to amateurism-based compensation limits. So you have this fundamental shift in the court. And I think, and I've written about this, I believe that the U.S. Supreme Court, having taken the case and now it's receiving briefings on the case, it's going to hear oral argument on March 31st, and then it's going to issue an opinion probably in June of 2021. But I believe that the U.S. Supreme Court is going to adopt the NCAA's position and essentially grant the NCAA absolute antitrust immunity in cases by athletes challenging the NCAA's amateurism-based compensation limits. And if that happens, it will go down in history, along with this Board of Regents decision from 1984, as one of the most consequential single events in the history of college sports. And then on top of that, you have the January 5th special elections in Georgia, which flipped the Senate from Republican to Democrat. And the NCAA and Power Five, all of a sudden, in one fell swoop, on one day, 
lost their advantage in the Senate. And they were really, I think, counting on having a bill come out of the Senate that was going to give them some of these other things, you know, outside of the antitrust immunity context, notably this federal preemption that would have nullified all these state laws. So that completely changed the dynamic. And now you have the NCAA and Power Five pulling back from Congress and waiting to see what's going to happen in this Austin case. And so all of these events have come together and, and they're so important, but you really have to, we have to look almost on a month by month basis, starting back in May of 2019, to fully understand the extent of the NCAA and Power Five's cynical and dishonest campaign to achieve these draconian federal immunities and protections. And one of the reasons I named this podcast, The Big Amateurism Monologues, is that when I look back over the tactics that the NCAA and Power Five have employed starting in 2006 with the beginning of the antitrust wave of athlete suits and up to the present, the tactics that they employ look a lot like the tactics that Big Tobacco has employed or any of the bigs, uh, Big Tobacco, Big Pharma. And one of the hallmark traits of the bigs is that so much of their business interests are being determined, not necessarily at the executive level, but by outside lawyers, by lobbyists, by public relations spin doctors. And one of the myths, I think, that has survived even through the perfect storm is that the in-system stakeholders in college sports, particularly the NCAA and the Power Five and, and the universities through their representatives, college presidents, chancellors, governing boards, that all of these stakeholders are sitting down at conference tables and having intelligent, thoughtful discussions about changing the fundamental way that the system relates to the athletes and particularly the revenue producing athletes that drive the value in the product. That's not happening. What's happening is that outside lawyers, lobbyists, and some of the best public relations people that money can buy are dictating the future of college athletics, or at least big time college sports, you know, where the money is. And that's something that I think a lot of people don't understand. So th this disconnect between the fundamental nature of the NCAA and higher education and the nonprofit world of higher education and the business, these cynical, aggressive business tactics is a result of the change in strategy that occurred when the NCAA and Power Five started to sense that they were really under existence threat and their business model was at risk. And ultimately, they put money above values. That's the long and short of it. And that's really the story of modern college sports. So what I want to do for the remainder of this introductory episode is to tell you a little bit about myself so you can understand who I am and where I'm coming from. And then I just want to give a brief outline of where we're going to go from here. Because to get to the perfect storm, there's some really fascinating historical events and some in-system narratives that have developed over the years that we need to tease out. But let's first, let me just tell you a little bit about who I am. So I am a former Division One athlete in a revenue-producing sport. I played basketball for Duke from 1981 to 1984, and those were Coach K's early years. I started as a walk-on and then got a full scholarship, and, and then my senior year was a team captain. So I've kind of seen how that world works. And even though my experience is dated, I think that there are a lot of things that haven't changed in the business of big-time college sports. And one of them is the fundamental relationship between the revenue-producing athletes and the uh, universities. In 1956, 
in another perfect storm era, the big time college sports interests chose to abandon any rational conceptualization of amateurism when they went with a full athletic scholarship. And the quid pro quo there really had little to do with the student part of student athlete. It was an athletic scholarship and the quid pro quo was that the athlete provided his skill, talent, and labor in exchange for a scholarship and a seat in a classroom. And, and that relationship exists today. And it gets lost, I think, in some of the propagandized versions of intercollegiate sports at the NCAA and Power Five paint. But it, it's essentially a business relationship. And it has been for a long time. That hasn't changed. The other thing is that when I was at Duke, those were the years that this Board of Regents case was playing out. It was one of those things that I don't think anybody really understood the consequence of it. But it started in 1981 in the District Court of Oklahoma, then went to the Tenth Circuit, then the U.S. Supreme court ruled in 1984. So I view that experience as, as important. The second thing, as I left Duke, I did some work with a friend of mine who was my basketball mentor. His name is Dick DeVenzio. He played basketball at Duke and he was an academic All-American. He was my hero. He was a point guard. I'm a point guard. And when I was just a little kid, I went to some camps that he ran after he left Duke. But he became really a pioneer in athletes' rights and was on the front edge of all of this. Unfortunately, Dick's voice was silenced about 20 years ago. He passed away from cancer. But in the 1980s, challenging the NCAA's core values or making a case that athletes were not being treated appropriately was heresy, and he got some blowback. But I, I did some work with him, and in 1986, he published a book titled Rip Off You, The Annual Theft and Exploitation of Major College Revenue Producing Athletes. And the book wasn't a commercial success. I think it gained some traction in a very small athletes' rights community. But I did some work for Dick with uh, on that book. I did a little content ed editing, and I did a little little research. But more importantly, I spent many an evening discussing the issues with Dick and we would go back and forth. And he was a dynamic thinker. I was headed to law school and I was just coming off my experience as a college athlete. And we had some great discussions. I was kind of a devil's advocate. At the time, I really wasn't a true believer in the athlete should be paid line of thinking. And that's changed. But my way of thinking about these issues is different than a lot of people. And, and for me, that, that goes back to the 1980s. So I, I went to law school. And then when I finished, I went to the University of Georgia. And that was actually an interesting transition because I went from what I thought was the hotbed of college basketball, the ACC and, and Tobacco Road. And I grew up in Durham. Uh, Durham's my hometown. So I, I grew up with that. To the University of Georgia in Athens, which was the center of the college football world and the SEC. And, and it was really an interesting comparison and contrast. And I think that having lived in both of those worlds has informed my thinking as well. But when I finished law school, I went uh, and worked for a couple of large firms and I was a litigator and I had a, a good number of cases in federal court. You know, I did that for about 15 years. And, and my experience as a litigator has really helped me to look at some of these issues, particularly the antitrust cases. And I've gone deep in the weeds in the electronic files in these big antitrust suits, particularly O'Bannon and Austin, to really figure out what's going on here and, and what the NCAA and Power Five conferences are trying to do. And it is not at all what they have portrayed to the public in, in their, their few public comments about these cases. They've been very coy about talking publicly about what's going on in these cases. And there's a good reason for that. And we're going to talk about that. 
And then the other thing that you should probably know is that I spent some time in academia. So I was an adjunct professor and, and I also worked as an administrator at two big time universities. And I have a sense of how the academic community thinks about big time college sports behind the academic veil. And that's a really important understanding because one of the things that gets lost in, in this whole discussion about the business of big time college sports is that the buck really stops with the universities and their been all of these reform efforts really going back to the 1920s that it set a template that was really hostile to big time college sports because the academic interests believed it was fundamentally inconsistent with the academic and intellectual mission of the universities. And that has really survived into the 21st century. That's a really important piece of this puzzle because some of the narratives that have developed and survived into the 21st century from the kind of academic take on big time college sports have served in my judgment to delegitimize in certain academic circles, not just the big time sports enterprise, but the athletes who provide the value in them. So we're going to talk a lot about that when we talk about the reform movements in college athletics. So now let's talk a little bit about the structure of the podcast and what we're going to be looking at going forward. To put the perfect storm in context, we're going to need to lay some foundation and that's going to get down to some really fundamental issues, starting with why are colleges in the business of big time college sports, particularly given some of this resistance that has come from the academic community. Why are they in it? What's in it for them? And that requires us to really take a good hard look at what it is that universities value, what they want, what they crave. And that analysis is going to take us back to the early 20th century when there were some external commentators who were offering some opinions on what higher education ought to look like in America and the role of big time college sports in that transition. And then we're going to talk about the stakeholder groups. A lot of people when we talk about the business of college sports, they just, you know, they roll their eyes or shrug their shoulders or throw up their arms and just say, it's too complicated. It's just too complicated. So I think one of the ways to make it understandable is to identify all the stakeholders, but do it categorically and, and conceptually. And I have done that for you. And I've got really five stakeholder groups into categories that make sense. And I think once we understand that basic framework, talking about some of these issues will be easier to understand. And some of the things we're talking about will, will kind of come into place. And so those five groups are the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries like the NCAA and the universities and all of the people on the inside. Then you have the external commercial stakeholder beneficiaries. And you're talking about big entertainment, big media, the shoe and apparel companies, the sports marketing companies, and all these satellite interests that are making money off of this massive college sports industry. And so those two stakeholder groups really influence each other. And they both share one thing in common, and that is that they are invested in preserving the status quo because they're benefiting from the status quo. And then you have these external reform-minded stakeholders. And that's what I was referring to early, mostly in the academic community. And they have, since the early 20th century, been essentially 
creating narratives that are hostile to big time college sports. And they're an interesting stakeholder group because they have a symbiotic relationship with the in-system stakeholders at the governance level, at the kind of the philosophical, what are we doing here kind of level. But that stakeholder group is in large measure hostile to big time college sports and the interests of the coaches and the athletes. And then we have the external regulator stakeholders. And I talked about the, some of those earlier in the episode. And so who are those? You've got Congress, you've got state legislatures, you have federal courts, you have consumers. I didn't identify consumers as, a, as an external regulator, but consumer perception is really important here because when these antitrust suits, one of the things that was central to the analysis of whether amateurism was kind of a trump card was this notion that consumers had this strong preference for amateurism. And that is a, I think, a shaky premise but it's one that the NCAA and the Power Five have been arguing. But consumer preference and consumer behavior and consumer response to any changes in the business model are really important because that's ultimately going to drive the market. So we have that as well. And then the ultimate external regulator is free markets. And that ties into the consumer preference issue. And the NCAA and Power Five are scared to death of free markets. And I think that's for two reasons. One, they simply don't want to have to shift the pile of cash and move any of it over to the actual laborers who provide the value in the product. They're, they're very happy with the status quo. But I think another reason that they're really afraid of free markets is that they so much of their case to preserve the status quo is built on this notion that the next penny that a college athlete receives above his scholarship is going to be the penny that breaks the back of the system. And then college sports, as we know it, will collapse and will be gone forever. And free markets would test those theories. And it's my belief, and, and there was some expert testimony in both O'Bannon and Austin to this effect on the issue of, of consumer preference, that if college sports were left to the free markets and the value of the athlete's services were left to the free markets, then the free markets, as the most efficient regulator of all of the external regulators, way more efficient than Congress, way more efficient than federal courts, way more efficient than state legislatures, would quickly tease out what consumers could live with, what they couldn't live with, and that the market would respond to that just as it does in any other industry in America. So I think there's this notion that the NCAA and Power Five are scared to death that the free market's going to work its magic and it's going to dispel a lot of these myths. And then all these people who are getting crazy money, Mark Emmert makes $4 million a year. His chief legal guy makes $1.5 million. The conference commissioners are making between a million and a half and $5 million. And you got coaches making almost $10 million. So all of that <laughs> is driving this fear-based response to the external regulator that is free markets. And then, of course, another predicate analysis is going to be all of these concepts that the NCAA has relied on over the decades. And this really began in the 1950s, which was part of the 1945 to 1956 perfect storm era, the post-World War II era. But those concepts include the student-athlete amateurism, and that's actually going to take us back into the late 19th century. And then the collegiate model, which actually has three separate meanings and has been put to three separate uses 
by the NCAA and in-system stakeholders. And then we have this competitive balance issue, which is a complete myth. And that goes to the competitive advantage, disadvantage in the talent acquisition market. And that's recruiting. And the talent acquisition market drives so much of the thinking among status quo and system stakeholders. And a lot of the panic that came out of these antitrust suits and into the state laws that were ostensibly favorable to athletes and would allow them no compensation. A lot of that kind of got ginned up by this fear that somebody was going to get a competitive advantage or lose a competitive advantage and all that stuff. But that's overstated. And then this new concept that was custom fitted for the name, image, and likeness debate called displacement that is tied to the collegiate model. We're going to talk about all that and and the philosophical underpinnings and how they're presented to the public and what they really mean, because those are the core values of these in-system stakeholders. And that's going to take a few episodes, but it's really interesting stuff. I find it fascinating. I think you will too. So that's the predicate for getting to the perfect storm. And then the perfect storm is going to be really a chronology, a kind of a event by event timeline that will make a lot of sense once we have some of the, the foundational issues, these big picture issues on the table. All right. As I wind up this introductory episode, I just, I want to say a couple of things. Over the course of my work with my blog and with preparation for the podcast. I've gotten feedback from friends of mine who I trust. There's good, smart people in the world who have a pretty sophisticated understanding of big time college sports. And some of the feedback that I've gotten has gone to really some of the intangible issues about the topic of of big time college sports. And what I've heard is that a lot of people watch college sports and engage in college sports and some even build their lives around college sports as a diversion from all of the serious issues of the day and politics and race and all of this stuff. And I've had a couple of close friends say, you know, Richard, on on this race thing, are you sure you want to go there? I mean, it's just so divisive and it's so easy to make a foot fault and What's the benefit in it? What's the payoff? Why, why are you rolling up the issues that way? So it's like, I don't want to talk about it. People I know don't want to talk about it. No one wants to talk about it. And you shouldn't talk about it. And I hear all of that. And I think there have been times when I believe that. And it's certainly the easy thing to do. But it's my belief, and this goes to both exposing kind of the truth of the business side of big time college sports and also talking about the racial component of the big time college sports business model, is that if we come to a more honest understanding of what this whole enterprise is about, and we talk honestly about the racial component, I think there could be a huge payoff, a benefit, kind of a liberating benefit, because the relationship between the consumers, and that's true whether you're just a casual fan, whether you're an alumni of a Power 5 school, or you have some other skin in the game, having an honest relationship with that thing in your life that means so much to you, I think enhances the value of the product and enhances the experience and enhances those relationships. So my aim here is to help people who love college sports the way that I do, to see it maybe in a different way and maybe come to an understanding that changing some of the fundamental terms of the relationships and and our understanding of the business model not only won't detract from our enjoyment of the game, it it will add to it. And that ties into another thing that I just want to say. The NCAA and the 
powerful in-systems stakeholder beneficiaries have been so good at delegitimizing the message of people who disagree with them. And I'm going to talk about some specific cases that, that go to that point, in, including the way that one of the key participants in that Northwestern football unionization effort was treated. But I find that really offensive. I, I love college sports and college sports has been a big part of my life. And I could very easily do a blog or a podcast or write a book about all the all of the amazing things that I experienced as a college athlete and the value that it's had to me on, on multiple levels. So I don't think that talking honestly about the business side or about the difficult issues in the business model means that you don't like college sports. <laughs> so I just want to nip that in the bud right now. And hopefully that will give a little bit of cover for people who are hesitant to talk about this stuff or think about it because they think they're going to be betraying the, the grand pact that we've all made, that everything is perfect the way that it is and any changes are just downright un-American. In fact, I'm going to argue the opposite, that actually the way that the business model is structured right now is downright un-American. And I, I mean that in a literal way. And I'll explain that when we get to some of the underlying principles about big time college sports and the history of it. So I want to thank you so much for joining me in this first episode. And I really think this, this can be a fun journey. And there's some great stories to be told as we get to this perfect storm that has the potential to be a game changer in college sports. So I have my new podcast website up and running. And the name of that site is bigamateurism.com. And you can go to the website and you can see all of the episodes. And one of the things that I'm going to do is in the show notes section, I'm going to make my best effort to identify all of the external resources that I rely on as I uh, go episode by episode. And that would include books that I reference, work product, NCAA work product, reform effort work product, congressional testimony, legal decisions, and, and the materials that are easily accessible. I've gone deep into the electronic vaults in some of these cases and everything I, that I access is a matter of public record, but a lot of it isn't in a format where I can just link to it. But most of the stuff is, and I want you to be able to take a look at that for yourself. So I will do that. And my hope is to try to crank these episodes out. This first episode in some ways was the most challenging because it's uh, difficult to know how general to be and how specific to be. And it's hard to find that balance. And I, I hope I've done that. And I, I hope it's retained your interest. But going forward, it's going to be much easier because it's going to be issue driven. And my goal is to crank these things out. And I'm trying to get up to speed to the perfect storm to try to get on the same track as this Austin suit in the Supreme Court, because that's moving quickly. And again, oral argument on that is on March 31st, and then a decision is going to come probably by June of 2021. So I want to be in real time with that as soon as I can. So thanks again for joining, and I'll be back at you in 48 hours. Hope to see you then.